If you're tired of bad news, if you need some positivity, if you want to support small businesses, then welcome to Happy Grateful Blessed with Kaysville's own mayor, Tammy Tran. Here, you'll get to see the best of humanity from within Utah's hidden gem, Kaysville City. Every month, you'll discover small businesses, hear unique and incredible stories, and understand the difference you make in this wonderful city. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you'll never miss a chance to find a new business to support and learn what makes a city like this one work as well as it does. So join us as we explore Happy Grateful Blessed with Tammy Tran. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Celeste Malloy. Celeste, thank you for being with me. I'm excited to do this. I am so excited to talk to you. Celeste, as most people know, hopefully everybody knows, is our Republican nominee. Yes. For House District 2. two. So I'm so excited to talk to you, Celeste. I love your whole story. <laughs> I've, I've attended a bunch of your town halls, and I totally support you. So oh, thank excited. you. There, you've been on podcasts before, and you've done a bunch of interviews, and so I kind of wanted to be able to ask you some you may be unique questions, just so people can get to know you even better. Great. Okay, so tell us about, let's just start from the beginning. Tell us about your childhood. <laughs> well, I've <laughs> as told... As far back as you want. I've told this story a lot of times, but um, not everyone's heard it. I've okay. said it a lot, and not everybody's heard it, so I will, I will tell you again, because it is hard when you're running to help people get to know you. Um, that's one thing that I have learned about campaigning. You think it's about getting your message out there, but so much of it is just giving people the chance to get to know you. So thank you for this opportunity. Um, I was born in Cedar City, but I grew up in a, a little teeny tiny town in Nevada. It's called Heiko, Nevada. Um, nobody's ever heard of it, even people who live in Nevada. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and it was a great place to grow up. Um, and I talk about it a lot because I think it really has shaped a lot of why I would want to run for Congress now. Um, the town I grew up in was really small. It was a mining town when I was a kid, and the mine shut down because of but it was market manipulation. For the community. It was, um, and and it's a county that's almost completely public land. It's ninety eight percent public land, is what one of the county commissioners told me, and I didn't even know that that was a thing when I was a kid. It just there was a lot of open space around us. You you never questioned things. Nice. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, but because of that, you know, I I grew up in an atmosphere where the federal government was really involved in everyone's lives. And I had this um, sort of cynical attitude that the government can just do whatever it wants. Mm -hmm. And I talk about that a lot because it really has shaped most of what I've done since then mm -hmm. and, and why I would want to be a member of Congress. Well, it's probably inspired so much passion for you. Yeah. And, and just enthusiasm for what can be different. Yes. But I also grew up really cynical about Congress. You know, oh, did you? I, I sort of had this, not sort of, I definitely had this idea that Congress was a distant entity. And even though I knew they technically represented people, I, I never thought that they actually represented in any real sense. I just thought they were in Washington, D.C. doing their thing and ignoring people. And that's exactly what it seems like to everybody else, including yeah. me, that they do. So I'm, we're really excited that you're going to be out there. Supporting well, us and speaking up for us. Thank you. Did you were you always involved in politics? I mean, it sounds like you had some early on kind of um, opinions. Yeah. About how the world was. I wasn't super involved when I was younger. I did when I was uh, probably a young teenager, maybe not even quite a teenager yet. My dad started recording the Rush Limbaugh show. It came on at like one o'clock in the morning. Oh, you, really? And he would record it and then watch it 
in the afternoons when he got home from work. And That's I started awesome. watching that with my dad and debating political ideas with him. And it was sort of for a, a young girl, it was kind of a way to have something to talk to my dad about. That's great. But that's probably when I first started getting interested in politics. I love that example that our parents can set. Yeah. And just kind of realize what you're maybe really good at. <laughs> and maybe it made you interested in law. I'm not sure how that path forward went. I know that you participated in an FFA concert, or not concert, contest <laughs> when you were a yes. little kid. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I wasn't a little kid. I was a senior in high school. Okay. As a, as a freshman in high school, I started being involved in the Future Farmers of America mm -hmm. program, uh, which was really normal in my high school. My brothers had done it. It was a good leadership club and a chance to go on trips. So when you oh, okay. go to a high school as small as one I went to, you want to be involved in things that you get to go on trips and meet people from other high schools. And right. FFA was a really good way for me <laughs> to do that. That's awesome. Um, one of the things that my FFA chapter had a lot of focus on. We did soil judging and range judging. Um, and we had really? coaches for both of those who were volunteers from the other side of the county who would drive over and teach us these skills. And I was too young to really appreciate it at the time. And now I'm just amazed that they would do that. They'd come over once a week and teach a bunch of high school kids how to do these things that were part of what they did for a living. It, it's great that high school kids were interested in learning that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, well, really we only had so many options. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. I'm glad that you chose that option. It's really educated you and yeah. put you on a good path. But then my senior year, I went to SUU to their big state contest oh, okay. and won. And the winner of that contest gets a full ride scholarship to SUU if they major in agriculture. So it ended up, again, the, the that things cool. that are big in life seem small when mm -hmm. they start, right? The, the fact that I was involved in FFA and doing these particular contests was just sort of what, what we did in my high school. But it, it ended up determining where I went to college, which set me on a path that I never could have imagined, but it didn't seem like I was making big life choices when I was a freshman oh, joining gosh, FFA and doing contests. I, that is so cool. It <laughs> really you. is. It, it, it honestly gives me good chills. I, I talk about getting these feelings of when moments were inspirational and really impactful in someone's lives. Yeah. It's very cool. Thank you. That, that put you on that path. I've heard a great story about you and your sister going to law school together. <laughs> <laughs> tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, when I tell people that I went, it was in the same law school class as my sister. I get a little bit defensive because I also live with my sister. I only have one sister. <laughs> we have four brothers, but I only have one sister. Um, and I'm worried that we just look like, you know, weird spinsters who've never done anything on our <laughs> own ever. But um, we are, you know, there's six kids in my family. I'm number four. She's number five. Oh, okay. So we, we didn't get much space from each other as kids. And we never really did a whole lot together when we were younger. Um, I went to school at SUU. She went to UNLV. Um, she majored in sports medicine. I majored in agriculture. And we were both mid-career doing very different things and independently each decided to take the LSAT and neither one of us told anybody what really? we were doing. <laughs> so you both did it secretly just yeah. on your own to see how you do maybe? Yeah. Well, okay. I had been out of school for almost 10 years at that point and oh, really? I just didn't know. I thought I'll take the LSAT and see what happens. But if I, you know, horribly fail, I'm not telling anybody that I tried. Right. I understand that. Um, and so by the time I finally told my sister that I was taking the LSAT, she, I was sitting in her office and she opened a drawer and pulled out her LSAT study book. That's and, so neat. Yeah. And for a long time, I hoped that she would change her mind because I thought this is 
I didn't know any lawyers. Nobody in my family ever went to law school. I felt like I was really blazing a trail and being Mm -hmm. a pioneer. And uh, yeah, we ended up in the same class at the same school. At the same school. And it's it's still a little pioneerish, but I just didn't get to be the only one. Celeste, that's really neat that you had <laughs> that you. in common and you didn't even discuss it or anything. No, and I that's thought cool. it would be, you know, in, in law school, you're graded on a curve and it's really competitive. Mm-hmm. And I thought being really competitive with a bunch of strangers is bad enough. Having right. my sister in the class will make it unbearable. But it turned out to be really, really good. Having somebody there with me who knew me and understood me but also was going through the same difficult mm-hmm. experience turned out to be such a blessing. I'm s- I'm so grateful that it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. That's that's awesome. How did your parents and your family feel? Your brothers um, were they surprised? Yeah, I think they were all surprised. I don't know. We don't we don't show a lot of emotion in my family. Okay. We don't, we don't react much to things. But uh, there are six kids in the family. All of us were you know well into adulthood at the point my sister and I decided to go to law school. But one of my brothers started medical school the same month we started law school. So half of my parents' kids were during the middle of the, you know, Great Recession, were suddenly (laughs) leaving careers and going back to school. So there was, I think there was a little bit of trepidation there. Right, right. I can imagine, but I bet they're both so proud of all of you. I hope so. That's really neat. You talked a little bit about growing up in a community where lots of public lands were, were available and just out there. Yeah. Tell us about that. I know you're the expert in public lands. Yeah, I mean it's it's one of those things that's always complicated. We have a lot of public land in the West and n- nobody likes that the federal government is managing the majority of the land in our state. Right. We do like the open space um and and we have a lifestyle that ha- is at least partly dependent on public lands. So it's always tricky to talk about the policy because there are people who want all of the land to be you know, turn over to the state or all of the land to be private. And there are people who are really nervous about that because they like the lifestyle. Um, And unless you're really involved in the policy, people don't always know the difference between categories of public land. So a lot of times when you talk about public land, people think national parks and everybody loves the national parks. Um, But people don't realize that when you're driving down I-15, a lot of that open space you see is managed by the federal government. It just never occurs to people that that's... That's public That's land. They just assume it's the city. Yeah. And they can't complain because it looks, <laughs> you know, it looks rural. And they wild. want the weeds cleaned <laughs> they up. They want the weeds cleaned up, exactly. So in Utah, is it true that 70% of our land is considered public lands? Yeah, it's about okay. that. And yeah. is that does that number include national parks? It does. Okay, so that's complete, like a a complete inclusion of everything that would be considered. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons it's hard to get an exact number because there's so many different categories. I mean, we have even military installations in Utah that are, I mean, that's federal land, but it's not the same as As. BLM sagebrush land. So that is so confusing for most of us. Yes. Probably all of us. That's why people like me have jobs. (laughs) As long as we keep it really confusing for everybody, then they need us. Exactly. You're the experts and it's awesome to have you here. Um, What do you think? So what has been your greatest preparation, I guess, for, for serving in Congress? Obviously, your, your professional experience. Tell us a little bit about yeah. why you're prepared to do this. 
Um, well, the obvious answer to that is that I spent four years working for Congressman Stewart mm-hmm. um, as his chief legal counsel, and I handled the natural resources issues for him. So I was the public lands person, water, energy, um, but I was working for a congressman. I didn't know anything about how Congress worked before I started doing yeah. policy work. After law school, I was in Washington County working as a deputy county attorney. I was a civil attorney, and I handled public lands issues there. And that's when I first started um, really working with the congressional offices and meeting staffers. And I had no idea. I mean, I think if you'd have asked me before law school, how many people work for a congressman, I probably thought it was two. And I wouldn't have known what they did. Um, And the answer is it's somewhere around 15 to 18 usually. Oh, really? And they're very, very busy. They could use a lot more people. Um, And so that's the best preparation I've had is working for Congressman Stewart, but also that work I did in Washington County where I was working with the congressional offices and seeing the work they do. And I said earlier, you know, I used to have this really cynical attitude about Congress and mm-hmm. I thought they never actually represented anyone. And that work I did in Washington County is what changed my mind about that. I really? watched Utah's delegation be truly representative and show up and and listen and then respond to things that Utahns were saying they needed help with. And I thought, yeah, this is how it's supposed to work. This you, is you're representation. actual results? Yeah. Okay. And I knew I wanted to be part of that. And so everything I've done since then has been, you know, in, in the policy realm, mm-hmm. trying to make sure that people who feel like they don't have a lot of power are being heard. And I think that is the key to fixing a lot of the problems we have in politics right now. People are angry. It doesn't matter where you go or where they are on the political spectrum. There seems to be this anger just under the surface. And I think a lot of it is that people feel like they don't have a voice. You know, they can show up and vote. They can write to their congressman, but nobody's actually listening to them. Nobody's hearing their frustrations and responding to them. So I'm, I'm trying really hard to be on podcasts, be on the radio, show up, right. talk to people, and make sure they know who I am because I want them to feel heard. I want them to know that I'm listening and responding. I think that's how we're going to keep keep the parties together, keep mm-hmm. our country together, keep this American experiment in self-governance alive. You know what? I'm so impressed with your um, the, the hard work that you've done. I mean, your story you. is absolutely incredible. <laughs> I absolutely love everything about how you were able to um, win the, the nomination from the convention. I and the, from the delegates who yeah. are sometimes a tough group, but you worked so hard to do that, and I and I'm so inspired by that. Well, it was such a fun state convention. It was in Delta, and there was only one race. Mm -hmm. So everybody, by the time they got to Delta, nobody's coming in and out. Nobody's popping in for an hour and then going to run other errands. People stayed, and they were really focused, and the energy in that high school gym was just, I mean, you could feel it. And it it got more and more energetic as the day went on, and that was, you know, politics in its purest form. It was fun to watch. It is so cool. So Lee and my husband and I were able to be the um, babysitters, basically, <laughs> as you guys were sequestered for one of your debates. Yes. And it was so neat to be able to get to know you and talk to you then. Yeah. And it was interesting because as we're sitting in that room of sequestered candidates, you know, there was this feeling of uh, confidence yeah. from a lot of people, yeah, including you, but a real strong confidence from some. And I thought, you know, it'll be so interesting to see how this plays out. What <laughs> I'm I glad you <laughs> thought I looked confident that day. I'd never you done did. a debate before and I was very nervous. Oh, you were and fantastic. they split the group in half, uh-huh. as you know, because there were too many of us to put on the stage. So we, half of us had to just sit there for right. an hour right. and, you know, 
be nervous. And I thought I, I was doing everything I could to control my nervousness. So I'm glad you, I came across as confident. <laughs> you really did. Confident and well-prepared. And obviously Thank that you. showed so well, Celeste. I just I just love it. I love <laughs> the fact that you worked hard. How did you first meet Congressman Stewart? I mean, did you intern with him? No. How did that happen? I didn't even know that that was a, an opportunity that was out there, interning with a congressman. Really? I first met him when I was working on a BLM plan in Washington County. Oh, okay. And we, it was a draft plan. I was out trying to get people to comment and get some of the things in that plan fixed. And somebody suggested that we work with the congressional delegation, which I didn't, I would have never thought of. I didn't actually even think it was a good idea at first, but that's, oh, I okay. first met Chris Stewart when I was trying to get help on changing a BLM plan in Washington County. And when I first talked to him about it, I thought, I sort of expected him to be dismissive. I just didn't think that a plan in one county would um, be important enough to get the attention of a congressman. And when he listened and responded to the things I was telling him and said, yeah, we're going to have to address that, it really was a big, big moment for me. Yes, um, and then we sure. ended up having a congressional field hearing in St. George on that plan. And really? the whole delegation showed up along with other members of Congress. And it was just... I, it's, I talk about that a lot on the campaign trail, mm -hmm. too, because it was one of those watershed moments for me. And that was one of those moments I did know was big. Even when it was happening, I thought, this is, this is a pivotal moment that's going to change how I do whatever I'm doing for the rest of my career. But that's how I first met Chris Stewart. That's, that's a great story and a great experience. So as we talk about, you know, who inspires us, and yeah, I, I'm sure he's at the top of that list probably yeah. for you. He, he is. Um, I mean, as far as politics go... He's definitely been the biggest influence in my career. I also early on did a lot of work with Rob Bishop. Okay. Um, he was the chairman of House Natural Resources when I first started doing policy work. And he didn't represent Washington County, but he was always willing to listen and always willing to help. Um, and that was really important to me. And then the two of them both endorsed me when I decided to run. Oh, that's and right. That's... that means so much to me because I... They were my introduction to Congress and, and how representation works and should work. Um, so that means the world to me. Um, I've always told people to George Washington's kind of my political hero because he had all of the power and was willing to walk away from it. And that shaped our system of government in ways that I think we don't always remember now, but the idea that someone can be the leader mm -hmm. and then leave and go back to being a citizen That's is so really fundamental to, to America, but it is because George Washington did it. If he hadn't, I don't know that that would have become, you know, the standard for us. That's so true. It's, it's, it's really interesting to hear people talk about who inspires them <laughs> because it really sets a tone for kind of, you know, your personality and your character and, yeah. and who you aspire to be moving forward. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that. That's really interesting. I, you know, we talk about legislation and what can we actually do? And I think a lot of people kind of like you mentioned, initially think, well, we'll talk to our congressmen. They're not going to do anything for us. Why does it matter? Yeah. Um, but really things can get done. And so as we've talked, we've talked a lot about water. Yeah. Over the course of the last couple of years. Sure. So tell us, what can you do about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, this one's always a tricky question uh, for a congressional candidate because water is a state issue almost always. There are a few exceptions, but the state has jurisdiction over its own water. And I think that's the way it should be. The state should have jurisdiction over its own water. So water rights are issued by the state. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't want to see the federal government get 
in the middle of that process. So while I have a background in water policy and I have relationships with people who are doing water policy in the state, I'm trying to be really circumspect right now what I say about water because okay. um, my job, assuming I win this election in two weeks, is to support the state in their water goals. Okay. And even with issues like um, the Colorado River, which is an interstate body of water, so there's a federal nexus there. The states are doing the negotiation, and I think that's the way it should be. And then Congress needs to ratify the agreement the states come to. Got it. But it takes a lot of discipline. You know, I worked for Congressman Stewart. I, I handled the natural resources issues, and I know that people go to Washington, D.C., they meet with their congressmen. Western states are always saying, what are you going to do to help us with water? And it's the nature of members of Congress to want Selected. to, yeah, yes, be the heroes. They want to come up with the solution. They mm -hmm. want to say we solved the drought in the West, or we came up with the water solution. Um, and as tempting as that is, it's it's better to work with the states and support the states' goals because that's just good governance. Okay, that makes sense. So that's where you'll you'd leave that yeah power. But we do have to be. We have to have a plan when it comes to water. For I mean, sure. I'm willing to say at least that much. Yes. We can't we can't just expect that we're going to be able to keep going the way we've gone and be fine. We, water is our most limiting resource, and we have to have that in mind when we're doing all of our planning. And you're a mayor. You know how important planning <laughs> is. You, I do. You have to know how right. many new houses you can expect to build. You have to have a plan for that. And so right. I'm excited to see that the state is is doing a lot of that the the water planners um the the state planners they're working together right now right. and looking long term and trying to make sure we have a a growth plan that we can actually implement we are fortunate in utah i mean honestly people work so well together yeah and i've attended water symposiums and conferences and, and you're right all the districts are working together yeah. And um, all of the users and stuff in the state is really pushing that. So it's great. I've heard you talk a little bit about the Congressional Exchange Program. Yeah. Um, tell me, explain it to us, I guess, and, and kind of tell us what your thoughts are as far as that goes. So it's, I don't know, I think the, it's ACE, American Congressional Exchange. I think they're a nonprofit. I don't know that much about the organization. Okay. Um, I talk about it a lot because while I was a staffer, Congressman Stewart participated in it. Oh, okay. And he, so Congressman Stewart was on the Intel Committee, and Ed Case is a Democrat from Hawaii who was also on the Intel Committee, and they participated together, which means Rep Case came to Utah and spent three days in, in our congressional district, in the second district, and looked at the issues that are facing Utah, and then Congressman Stewart went to Hawaii and spent a couple of days Okay. Not vacationing or having fun, <laughs> working, <laughs> but, but looking okay. at the issues that are facing Hawaii, um, and it was really a good experience for them. But you know, I'll let Congressman Stewart talk about his own experience. But for me, as a staffer, I was not on either trip. Oh, okay, I was in the office working. But after Congressman Case got to be in Southern Utah and look at how big the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument is, and hear from rural sheriffs mm -hmm. that they have these search and rescue responsibilities on huge swaths of federal land that they're not getting any taxes from, oh. um, but they have more visitors than they do residents. And mm -hmm. so their tax dollars can only go so far, but they have the responsibility to run search and rescue operations for people who are coming from all over the world to enjoy our scenery, but they get themselves in trouble and mm -hmm. they need help getting out. Um, and because he saw that and he comes from a tourism state. 
I mean, mm-hmm. Hawaii has its own tourism issues. They also have more visitors than they do residents. True. Um, he could look at that and say, yeah, this, this doesn't feel right. The federal right. government has created this problem and we should help solve it. And so the two of them were lead co-sponsors on a bill I wrote oh. to try to get grant funding for sheriffs in rural areas with a high percentage of public land so that they can afford to have the equipment that's at least as good as the tourists have when they're that's out getting fantastic. themselves in trouble. Gosh, that's great. Yeah. So the whole walk a mile in somebody's shoes thing, mm-hmm. that's what the Congressional Exchange Program is about. Okay. And it was just fun to watch it actually work that way, to see us working together with an office that we didn't know, didn't have a lot in common with, until they went and saw each other's problems and realized what they do have in common and they can work together on it. Well, Celeste, that's, that takes me to my next question and really demonstrates who you are. I mean, what one thing that I hear constantly about you is that you're just able to reach out, work across the aisle, work across the table with other people, and bring the right parties together. I'm glad to hear so, that's what you hear yes, about me. That I, makes I, me feel really good. I do hear that a lot about you. So how else can we build bipartisanship, especially um, with what's going on right now? Yeah. Well, I think... The best way to build bipartisanship is to not try to force people to work together on issues that they just fundamentally, for principled reasons, disagree on. Okay. Um, I think too often when we talk about bipartisanship, we want people to work together on things that they're just never going to agree on, and it it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in the example I just used, Congressman Stewart and Congressman Case, they still vote very voted very differently on almost everything, right. but they found something that they could work together on without compromising their principles. And that's that's an anchor. That's a point. You that's know, that, now they have a relationship. Now they can call each other when, you know, one party is saying we're, we're going to do something like they each have someone they can call and say, hey, what's really going on? What do I need to know? Um, and I think when you start with things that aren't where you're not fundamentally far apart on principles and work together on those, then it starts to build a relationship. And the relationship is what helps you be bipartisan. Um, But trying to pretend that we can get on the same page on issues where there's just fundamental disagreement doesn't actually lead to anything productive. And so I, I, I like bipartisanship when there's room for agreement. When we try to be bipartisan on things that we're just totally principled in different directions on, then I think that's where some of the suspicion comes in. And and a lot of times when I'm on the campaign trail Mm -hmm. and people ask about being bipartisan, they actually think of it as a negative thing because what people are picturing is, are you going to compromise your principles just to get along? And nobody really likes that. Right. But getting along doesn't necessarily require compromising your principles. That's a really good distinction to make. And so when people are asking you, is that how you're answering it? Yeah. Well, you hopefully I do it more concisely than that sometimes. That was a little rambling, but yes. Well, but, but basically you're just able to say, hey, I, I'm, I'm not going to compromise just for the sake of compromise, right. but I am agreeable yeah. and I focus on relationship building. Yeah. And I'm willing to work with people in areas where we can align, even mm-hmm. if they have a D after their name. Yeah. But I'm not going to do things that aren't good for the people of the second district just because I want to have a bipartisan solution. Okay. I love that. I really appreciate that. As you've been campaigning, wow, it's been a long time. Well, it hasn't, I mean, how long has it been? Since June. Okay, yes. So it's been a short campaign, but it's been a 
uh, intense, Probably concentrated. Like 10 years. It does. What's I been, think I've aged at least 10 years. <laughs> I think you look fantastic. Thank and you. When, I mean, you're always so energetic. <laughs> so I've been, I've been able to attend a couple of campaign town halls and house um, cottage meetings and stuff like that and debates as well. And you just, you bring this fresh energy. Oh, good. And, and I really love that. <laughs> I just love that you're fresh. So what's been the hardest thing about campaigning for you so far? That is a really good question. Um, mostly what I've learned is I like campaigning more than I ever suspected I would. Really? The idea of going out and trying to sell people on yourself is horrifying. Mm -hmm. I think most people naturally shy away from that. Uh, but it's been a lot more exciting than I would have expected it to be because I like talking about policy. I like talking about issues. And when people are asking questions and I can get into a rhythm and talk about good politics, good policy, how it should be done. I really do like that. And it does give me energy. The, the hardest thing I think is that there are 800,000 people in this district and I want to get to know everybody. Right. And so I've run and run and run and mm -hmm. run and I talk to people six days a week. I do long, long days every day. Um, and then on Sundays I sleep and sleep and mm -hmm. sleep and then I do it again. Um, and I think even though that's, I mean, it's the good part and it's the hardest part. I mm -hmm. love that I've had the opportunity to meet so many people and talk to so many people. I've loved seeing people respond. You know, you know this, you're an elected official, you put your name on a ballot, mm -hmm. and suddenly you are very vulnerable in ways that are hard to explain. <laughs> it's true. People have opinions about everything you do. So. Everything. And, and what I say, what I wear, how right. long I stay. Um, but mostly people have responded really well. They want to be involved. People want to be part of the process. They want to feel like the things that are on their minds matter to the people who are running. And so that has been great. But the long hours and the lack of sleep, and I've eaten a lot of gas station food, <laughs> I bet you and probably eaten a lot of things that are not going to prolong my life in any way. <laughs> um, that part's been hard, mm -hmm. but it's all part of the process. You couldn't, you couldn't do it without that. So it's just, you just you, you just do it and you make it work. So that's, I, I love that. I love that you're such a unique candidate in that you weren't really well known in terms of being a candidate. Yeah. You know, I, I haven't ever seen your name on a ballot before and nor has anyone else. And no. so the fact that you were able to just honestly work so hard and, and be this fresh new voice has been great. What has been, what's, what's made you successful, do you think, in terms of, you know, how people are receiving you? Yeah. I'm sure there's a, a, a constant sort of, oh, I love this about you. I get asked this question a lot, and it's mm -hmm. the hardest question for me to answer because I'm probably the last person who knows what's working. Um, I know what I'm doing, and I mm -hmm. know why I'm doing it. The voters are probably a better source for, you know, why it's working, but I think that part of the reason people have responded well to me is because I made a decision early on not to not to wade into red meat talking points and you know sort of the clickbait type of campaign i wanted to run a campaign where i was showing up in person and talking about issues and i i've had a theory that most voters still want to talk about the kitchen table issues. You know, what you see on Twitter, what you see on the news is usually um, sort of ancillary to what people really care about. What people really care about is, can my paycheck make it through the month? Right. Are my kids going to be able to get jobs? Are my kids going to be able to buy houses? And am I going to be able to retire? You nailed and, it. Yeah. And so those are the kind of issues I've tried to stick with and talk about because a lot of the other issues 
end up being divisive even within the party. True. But it's not really what people want addressed. What people really want to know is that they can live the American dream. They want to know that they're going to be able to make a living, um, raise a family, and uh, you know, be self-sufficient until it, their time to leave this earth. <laughs> right. So I, those are the things I've tried to talk about, and I think people have responded well to that. They show up expecting sort of a more... More, more canned uh, sort of a... Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't talk about Democrats much. I Good. think the Democrats can define their own positions, and I think people expect a lot more of that. They expect to show up in here. The other side is worse than us because they do this. And I've tried to really avoid doing that. I've talked about what I want to do, what I think is broken, what I think we can do to fix it. Um, and and I think that's what voters have responded to. But they, yeah. you may have to interview some voters to really find out. Well, honestly, so I'm not in your district, but what really res resonates with me is your message about what you are doing and why you're prepared to be a leader yeah. and why you have been a leader already. You're already a leader. And so it's given me confidence as I see you step up because I think on day one, you're prepared. You know a lot of the people that you're going to be working with already. You know all the yeah. staff. Yeah. And, and, and then that's a huge advantage as well. So Even I'm still learning how important that is. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got a brand new Speaker of the House. Yes. He's still learning. Uh, usually when someone comes into that position, they've been the number two for a long time. Um, but we've got a guy who is fresh. Speaker Johnson was not um, sitting in the wings waiting. And so he's doing things differently. He's still setting his up. Um, we're two weeks out from an election he's not going to have much experience under his belt by the time I get there. And it's been really helpful already that I have some background in how the Hill works and who some of the people are. I've got people I can call. Mm -hmm. I know right. who to ask some of these questions to. I was on the phone this morning with one of the speaker's staff, you know, talking about the questions you don't even know you're supposed to ask. Um, and so I do think it's helpful to the constituents in the second district to have somebody right now with with the climate and the atmosphere that is in Congress right now to have somebody who already knows a little bit about how it works and doesn't have to start from scratch because it's it's going to be tricky. It's going to be confusing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I, I really love that you're you're asking the questions that you most people don't even know that they need to ask. And and that's so helpful because you'll be able to get in there and get things done. And that's what we're hoping for. Me too. So I, I appreciate you being here. Is there anything in closing that you'd like to, to tell everybody? Um, well, the, the thing I always like to close with is that I'm just still so grateful to be where I am. Um, it's easy in a campaign to just keep looking at your to-do list and keep marching through all the things you have to do. And I'm trying to be better at taking the time to stop and be thankful and take stock of how amazing it is to even be in this position. So I'm true. less than two weeks out from a general election. Um, six months ago, I didn't know I was even going to do this. And to live in a country and in a state where someone like me who doesn't have a ton of money, doesn't have a big political name, can decide they want to serve, they want to represent people, and be able to go through the process I've just gone through mm -hmm. is a huge blessing. And it's it's actually kind of miraculous. And I don't ever want to lose track of that. I want to keep that in mind all the time. Well, it's the American dream. Yeah. And you're living it. Yes. And, and it gives us all hope as we watch you that well, we can make you. a difference too. And, and people can. We this can. isn't just something I say on the campaign trail. In this country, you can decide you want to make a difference and go to work and make a difference. And I, I love that. I hope we 
we all keep that in mind as we're making our decisions so that we don't my biggest fear for this country in the you know future is that we'll get frustrated with the the human weaknesses that are involved in self-governance and give up on this experiment and i hope we never do that because it is amazing that we have these kind of opportunities well i i know that my kids are watching you and I really appreciate the example that you're setting oh. for them. They're in their 20s, and they get sort of disheartened, thinking, yeah. oh, there's no point. And I said, no, look, you guys, you, <laughs> you can do this, too. You can make a difference. So thank you for your hard work. Thank you for being willing to step up and doing it. And you're I'm welcome. so excited to see you get elected. So it's thank exciting. You. Thank you, Celeste. <laughs> to all my podcast listeners, thank you for listening. I really appreciate your feedback and your support. Please leave comments, and please leave suggestions for future guests. And most importantly, subscribe. Thank you.